Georgia's DBHDD is urging people to store and lock away all medications to prevent theft and keep them away from children and pets. Old medications can be disposed at Dropbox locations. Dropbox locations can be found at opioidresponse.info. Thanks for listening to the Political Rewind podcast. Be sure to like and follow us and rate us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Political Rewind. I'm Bill Nygut. I think it is at least relatively inarguable that the biggest political story in the nation uh, today is the release of just a few pages of the special grand jury that uh, spent more than eight months investigating uh, whether or not uh, interference in the Georgia uh, presidential election outcome here uh, merits uh, criminal charges against some of those who were investigated by Fonnie Willis, the Fulton County DA, and the grand jury. Um, We know some things for certain uh, from the very sparse release of pages, um, and there's a lot of speculation uh, about other aspects of just looking at individual lines in what was released. And what I think is interesting, and I'll really want to hear what the panel thinks about this, is when the few pages first came out, I think many of us thought, oh, not much here at all. And and that may be true, but if you do look at individual lines, you there are many people who are now saying this line, that line really gives us hints about important uh, aspects of what the grand jury concluded. Now, uh, let's make that clear by introducing the panel and beginning a conversation about all this. I'm really thrilled that Tamar Hallerman is back with us today, AJC senior reporter. And of course, Tamar, you have been on top of this story uh, from the very beginning and um, are one of the people who's had a direct line to Fonnie Willis uh, throughout this. Not that she's telling you a lot that we don't, that she's not giving you confidential information, let's be clear. <laughs> yeah, she's really tamped down on what she's been telling the press and, and saying publicly the last six months or so after being heavily criticized by folks. So unfortunately, uh, not not much coming out of that office. Uh, but thanks for having me back, Bill. I could not stay away. Word. Well, we're thrilled you're here. We're also very happy to have Stephen Fowler, GPB's political reporter, who's been covering the grand jury as well. Stephen, uh, thank you for uh, taking the time to be with us today. Yeah, happy to be here and happy to give my pointer finger refreshing the court document webpage a little bit of a reprieve <laughs> for the next hour or so. Uh, boy, that's absolutely true, isn't it? Um, and we're joined by two professors of constitutional law who I'm so thrilled uh, could be with us today to help us parse out what we think perhaps the summary of the reporting that came out yesterday may tell us about what's next in the grand jury. And I'm talking about Fred Smith, a professor of constitutional law at Emory University. Hi, Fred. How are you? Hello. Hello. It's great to be here this morning. And um, we're also joined by Anthony Michael Christ, who is a professor of constitutional law at Georgia State uh, University. Um, Anthony, thank you so much for being with us today. Uh, absolutely. Glad to be here. All right. So let's get right to tomorrow. I'll start with you on this. Let's, let's uh, start by what we uh, know. First of all, how many pages of this report were released? 
Well, we saw that the report itself is only nine pages long, which was one of the more shocking revelations. But we only, when you really looked at the text, it was only about four pages, heavily redacted, lots of lots of blank spaces. Um, but that was one of the big startling revelations for me coming out of yesterday was, wait, this group spent eight months interviewing 75 witnesses. And we might only see a relatively sparse report. So it shows we're not going to get this big voluminous um, kind of analysis of what might have happened in the election in 2020, like what the January 6th committee came out with in December. This is going to be presumably a very narrowly tailored doc document looking at who they think based kind of synthesizing all they heard, who they're they're recommending for charges. Um, yeah, I, I think that I want to we're going to probably at some point speculate about the limited nature of this report, but we'll do that in a few minutes. And uh, tomorrow and then, Stephen, we do know two things for certain that came out of this report. One is that uh, a majority of the grand jury members believe that at least one, if not more, of the 75 witnesses who testified committed perjury. Right, Tamar? Yeah, they they're they raised that possibility and they asked the DA's office to look into it forward and if more and if they they get evidence to bring forward perjury charges but they did not say who they think might have committed perjury and they didn't provide evidence to, to show why they might think that we don't know if they just got a icky feeling when they heard testimony we don't know if they were um, comparing testimony they received from one person, comparing it to other people they might have heard from. Maybe they were comparing it to January 6th committee testimony they saw on TV. We really don't know. Um, so, Stephen, you're welcome to comment on that. But then let's also talk about the other uh, piece of information we know for certain that came out of the grand jury's deliberations. Uh, they concluded after looking at uh, listening to witnesses, looking at evidence, there was absolutely no reason to believe there was any fraud in the 2020 presidential election. And um, there is some importance to that, I think, Stephen, because it's another, uh, it, it, it's more evidence that Donald Trump's efforts to overturn the election were based on a lie. Right. And so you have to think about the context. In As all of these things were happening in real time, you had state and local elections officials, you had uh, media outlets, you had the election tech company, Dominion, that did Georgia's voting machines. You had all of these groups saying Georgia's elections are accurate and secure. We did a hand count of everything. We did a, a recount after that. And so the finding of this grand jury saying we found that there was no evidence of widespread fraud that overturned the election, you might be like, okay, cool. Welcome to November 2020 like the rest of us. But it's important in the context of this investigation because depending on who they talk to and what evidence they had and things, what could happen is Fonnie Willis could say at this time XYZ happened that showed the election was accurate and there was no fraud and everything. However, person A here decided to say things were false, even though they knew otherwise. So it's not necessarily just about saying, yes, we know the election was accurate and there was no fraud. But I think that will come into play more when we get to the indictment stage by saying and showing 
to a jury that some of these people, either through the perjury angle or through some of the other charges, that these people that made these claims about Georgia's election did not really believe they were true or they had enough evidence that they should have known they weren't true. And that is probably going to not go well for them in a court of law. So, uh, Anthony and then Fred, let's just, for the time being, stick with what those two facts are that we now know. What do you make of uh, both of those things, possible perjury and uh, the conclusion that Stephen described pretty well as to why it's important that the grand jury found no evidence of of any effort to um, uh, rig the election? Yeah, so I think it's important to start out from the get-go to be cautious And I think it's fair to make some reasonable speculation based on what we saw in the report. And I think that we also need to be cautious about uh, wish casting too much. And that's what I've seen a lot of commentators on Twitter in particular, uh, they, they see what they want to see in this report. As to the perjury charge or the, the questions about perjury, I think it's exactly right that the the grand jurors suggested that they had a feeling that that witnesses were not completely truthful or were deceitful or somehow dishonest, but they don't necessarily indicate that they have evidence of that. And they, in fact, write, they they said to Fonnie Willis in the DA's office, if you find compelling uh, evidence that we are correct, you should pursue this. Um, and, and perjury is a notoriously hard charge to make stick because you have to show that people willingly and knowingly said something false that was materially false. And just trying to be deceitful is not perjury, right? So you can give a, a an accurate answer that is misleading, but that's not perjury. So I think we need to be very cautious about that. But if you think as a juror that witnesses are being deceitful and covering something up, I do think it's more likely to suggest that those jurors also think that there's an underlying criminal act or a number of underlying criminal acts. And so I would not be surprised if we could read from that uh, an indication that it's more likely than not that they will recommend some charges. And on the final note about the the democracy being safe and secure and our elections being accurate point, I think that's incredibly important because it speaks to intent and it it speaks to who do what and when and whether or not people had the requisite intent to commit a crime in Georgia. And I think it's also important because it came out the very same day uh, uh, that there were uh, briefs filed in a lawsuit from Dominion voting machines against Fox News for defamation. And, And there, right, we saw that there was a really clear timeline of when elections officials, Dominion officials, and all sorts of people, even within Fox News, said, well, we know that these allegations of the big lie are not true. And so if you can import that into the criminal justice system and into a prosecution, I think that's a very compelling case to show intent, to show purpose, and to show uh, a corrupt end that was attempted to be achieved by the people who are subjects to this investigation. Yeah, I want to talk a little bit later about uh, what we've learned as of yesterday about Fox News personalities knowing that these uh, uh, lawyers for Trump were making things up. But, Fred, in the meantime, uh, if if I could ask you, uh, the potential for perjury charges, it's my understanding that if, if the DA thinks there's evidence that she can bring charges of perjury uh, against any of the witnesses, it could be an independent 
charge, or it could be what I think we call a predicate underlying act that would in fact uh, relate to a broader indictment on what, RICO uh, or or, uh, some similar uh, statute? Yeah, right. So, I mean, so perjury, um, for the reasons that Professor Christ noted, they, it's difficult. Um, it's also difficult because you have to show intent, right? So even if someone does say something that's not accurate, uh, but that that wasn't their intention, uh, then uh, that that creates issues too. So it's it's, it's difficult. Um, that said, uh, it's also the case that if one could have a really strong case for perjury against a witness who had a lot of other information, um, that sometimes uh, something that a prosecutor might do uh, is um, you know, threaten a perjury charge uh, because it, you know, it is an independent um, violation of the law, um, and then leverage that, right? So, um, and, th- and this is and this is true. It, sometimes it's not perjury. Sometimes it might be um, some uh, some smaller offense. Um, that the prosecutor might use while trying to work their way up to the bigger uh, defense. And they might give someone immunity from a really strong perjury charge if they uh, indicate uh, more. Uh, And so if a witness has some kind of some really uh, important material information. Um, You know, in this particular instance, right, I mean, the the language in the report is very vague, right? Um, it says may have been committed by one or more witnesses testifying before it. Um, and there's, there's a lot of caveats. Um, and, you know, I think at this time, based on just what we have, um, I don't, there's so much we don't see <laughs> uh, in this report that we just don't have access to it, right? The, the section about perjury is labeled Roman numeral eight. <laughs> so we don't have one through seven, uh, and uh, and and so <clears throat> it's interesting that it, it leads me to the view that whatever is in one through seven is more sensitive at this time than eight. Um, and so, beyond that, I can't really speculate. Tamar, before we move past this, I think it's really important that we remind listeners um, of just some of who these who these witnesses were, the range of people who were called and therefore could be vulnerable at this point. So we're talking about everybody from Rudolph Giuliani to Mark Meadows, chief of staff, uh, to David Schaefer, chair of the state Republican Party, and and more that you may want to remind us of. Yeah, I mean, there were plenty of lawyers who were working for the Trump campaign who helped design plans to appoint a slate of alternate electors, John Eastman, Kenneth Chesbrough. There were uh, Georgia's top elected leaders, Governor Kemp, Secretary of State Raffensperger, Lieutenant Governor Jeff Duncan, the late House Speaker David Ralston, um, down to unelected aides, down to local elections officials, elections workers. They talked to 75 people, some of whose names we don't even know, um, but truly kind of every level from Georgia government all the way to top White House aides. Oh, and Cassidy Hutchison. It. I, I almost completely forgot about her. Lindsey Graham. Um, some folks who didn't even testify before the January 6th committee, this special grand jury got to hear from. So it could be anyone. Um, but obviously, what a scintillating detail to, to kind of wiggle out there without giving us much detail beyond that. Stephen, I think we should probably make it clear that um, 
we have to make we have to differentiate between, say, a David Schaefer who was a fake elector, and a Brian Kemp, uh, uh, and a uh, a Brad Raffensperger. Uh, there's no reason to think that either of them uh, were called because their suspicions about how they behaved in terms of the 2020 election. Kemp would have been called because presumably Fannie Willis wants to know what Donald Trump may have said to him about what his role should be in uh, trying to overturn the election, which uh, Kemp didn't do. Raffensperger has a clear reason for being there. But we don't want our, our listeners to think that they somehow are under suspicion Right. And I think it's also important to differentiate, too, between the purpose of the special purpose grand jury and the purpose of what the district attorney is and does in this case. I think some people might have wanted this special purpose grand jury to convene and say, all right, let's figure out all the ways we can get Donald Trump convicted or let's figure out all the crimes like you know, let's begin with the end in mind and think about those things. But they were more of a fact-finding investigative body that heard from people that were suspected of wrongdoing and also heard from people that weren't, like Brian Kemp, like Brad Raffensperger, like others. And they put together their piece of the puzzle of what happened after 2020 and if there were any crimes committed. Now, the next phase is going to be the district attorney's office who also has to look at the pieces of the puzzle from a, what sort of charges can I bring? What sort of charges do I think I can be successful on? What are the political implications of indicting or not indicting XYZ person? And so I think that's maybe why this report that we see is potentially only nine pages long, because what the special purpose grand jury was looking at and doing, and what Fonnie Willis and the DA's office has to doing is a large overlap in the Venn diagram, but not completely. And so that's why you're seeing people like Brian Kemp and David Schaefer mentioned in the same breadth for the grand jury, but not necessarily for the DA. Tamar, because I know you have to leave us uh, fairly soon, uh, I, I want to come back to you about one aspect of this. Um, we we know that the there's a section, and help me understand this more clearly, we know that we're going to be able to see at some point, we presumably, how grand jurors voted uh, in terms of the potential for indictments. What was the, how many grand jurors were there, 23? 23 with three alternates. Okay, so, and, and, and the reason that it matters to look at the arithmetic, who voted for, who voted against, something like this, is to a certain extent... It, Tell, correct me if I'm wrong, and then I'll ask, ask our, our, our legal experts. Uh, it could guide Fonnie Willis in terms of bringing charges because if there's not a, a real strong feeling among grand jurors to bring a certain charge, she may real, recognize that it, it won't play as well as things that are, have more unanimity. Is that fair enough? Yeah, I think it would be a hard sell for her politically to pursue charges against somebody if grand jurors, given all the evidence that they had, were closely divided over whether they should be indicted. Whereas it, it would be a much easier sell if it were unanimous or close to unanimous. And remember what this special grand jury does for the DA. It gives her political cover if she agrees with them. And so I think that's something she wants, given that she's a Democrat who's looking exclusively at Republicans and their actions. If she can be able to say, 
look, I'm not doing this as a, as a Democrat. I'm following the will of these 23 Fulton County residents, these everyday citizens who served on my uh, special grand jury. And when they saw all the evidence after they synthesized all of that, they recommended this unanimously or close to unanimously. It's an easier sell than somebody, you know, if, if the vote was, um, you know, 13 to, to 10, you know, that's a, that's a harder sell. There's also just the practical impact, right? That uh, down the line, uh, any indictment that is brought, uh, they're going to have to make their case beyond a reasonable doubt, and they're going to need unanimity, right? So they're going to need a unanimous jury to find beyond a reasonable doubt. Uh, and so here, if you have something far short of unanimity on a standard that's much less than beyond a reasonable doubt, um, then that kind of gives some indication of how a future jury might react to the same evidence. Um, so that's another reason to to watch um, that division. Anthony? Yeah, I, I think we had a, some different expectations maybe for what this report might have looked like based on what other special purpose grand juries produced historically in Georgia, although, again, they are a rare phenomenon, um, right? We saw in DeKalb County, it, you know, we were talking about dozens and dozens and dozens of pages of evidence um, that was produced. And if you, if, I think it's important to note that the title of that report and many of these reports are general presentments. And, right, the idea of the general presentment is, the full body of what the special purpose grand jury found uh, and the evidence they unearthed. There was some interesting debate in oral arguments a few weeks ago about whether to release this document, about whether it was a report or a special presentment. And the DA's office kept saying, well, it's a report and that's how it was labeled. And Judge McBurney said, yes, but that's because that's what you told them to label it. It really doesn't make a difference. I thought that that was initially perhaps an attempt to circumvent some statutory requirements to release this information, or at mm. least to delay the release of the information more. Um, it seems clearer to me now on the back end, seeing how short this document probably is, is that not only is it unlike these other grand jury reports that we've seen in the past, but it was purposely designed to be limited in the information that was in there. So we're not going to get a huge report. It's not going to be thing, anything like the January 6th report. I don't think we ever thought it would be, but it's definitely not going to approach that. It is very much more a limited trial balloon kind of, uh, you know, what what charges might stick, what what further investigation is necessary. It's, it's really a document for guiding the DA's office and giving political cover. And my colleague Bill Rankin yesterday talked with Danny Porter, who's the former uh, district attorney of Gwinnett County, who made a really interesting point. You know, he said the, the longer these documents are, if you're going to really provide detail um, about what might have happened, it gives defense attorneys, should this go to a trial, it gives them opportunities to kind of go down a rabbit hole and start contesting all these things laid out as facts. And so it just makes the DA's job a whole lot more complicated down the line. So keeping a document sparse and kind of in the opinion of grand jurors, not kind of laying out a set of, of facts, kind of ground rules at the top, it could make it an easier, kind of a lighter load for the DA. They don't have to worry about fighting defense attorneys on that front. Um. Tamar, before you leave us, um, we are going to turn after the break uh, to reading the tea leaves, as a, a number of people are doing, legal experts are doing, about what 
the special grand jury might be thinking about, say, indicting Donald Trump. But let's, tomorrow, before you have to leave, let's uh, mention Donald Trump's uh, Truth Social post uh, after the uh, few pages were released. I'll quote it. Thank you to the special grand jury in the great state of Georgia for your patriotism and courage. Total exoneration. The USA is very proud of you. And then in some other, maybe it was a separate post, somewhere he talked about his call to Brad Ravensburger was a perfect uh, call. Uh, Tamar, uh, we will recall that that's exactly the way Trump described his call with Vladimir Zelensky, a perfect call. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, and obviously what we saw yesterday is not an exoneration of him. I think he really seized on the fact that the document did not name him at all, which it did not. Uh, But it was very clear who uh, grand jurors were looking at, who is the central figure in all of this. And it does not exonerate him. We don't know who they're recommending for charges. It's clear on this document that they have indicted people, or sorry, recommended indicting people for for charges. Um, And I think he should not be breathing easy at this point. And indeed, a story my colleague Bill Rankin and I wrote this morning is that there are folks we interviewed, legal experts who looked especially at the order that Judge McBurney came out with earlier this week, uh, kind of picking it apart. And they think it implies that Donald Trump may have been recommended for indictment. Um, And we are going to talk a little bit about that, but I know you have to move on because you've got a lot of work to do today. So, Tamar, thank you so much uh, for being with us again uh, today to talk about this important uh, story. We're going to take a break right now, say goodbye to Tamar, and continue with this great panel. You're listening to Political Rewind. Thanks for listening to Political Rewind. If you like this show, you'll also like Georgia Today. It's a daily podcast from GPB News, bringing you compelling stories and in-depth reporting that you won't hear anywhere else. Join me, Peter Biello, for this quick and convenient way to get the best of GPB News' extensive coverage of the topics that matter to you, delivered directly to your device every weekday afternoon. We're continuing our conversation about the response to the release of just a few pages of the special grand jury's uh, report, um, and we're joined by uh, constitutional law professors Anthony Michael Christ and Fred Smith, and by our own political reporter uh, Stephen Fowler. Uh, so now we are going to cross into the area of speculation, reading the tea leaves to some extent. Um, Stephen, uh there are those, and, and Tamar referenced it before she had to leave. There are those, and, and let me make sure I say this correctly, and you'll correct me, I know, if I'm wrong. Uh, and I think Anthony Michael Price, you may be one of them, uh, who think that um, any that McBurney essentially said that the reason he wasn't releasing the entire report was for due process, that, uh, there, you know, in a special grand jury, uh, a witness who appears doesn't have the right to counsel being with him. They're not calling uh, witnesses who might test dif- disagree with one another witnesses and all of that. So that's one of the reasons it's been uh, uh, kept secret. But um, anyone who is not afforded the opportunity to appear before the grand jury means, said uh, McBurney, that none of those due process rights were satisfied. Well, the only one who didn't appear before the grand jury, 
who didn't have a chance to explain himself before the grand jury, which is what McBurney's talking about, was Donald Trump, which is why there are people who believe that perhaps he is, in fact, a target for indictment. We don't know that he's the only one that could apply to because the special grand jury is secret. And the only reason we know a lot of the people that have been asked to testify or did testify is because of the process where uh, the subpoena for testimony had to go to the Fulton County Court and then also the home court of the person that they wanted to have testify. So that's how we know, for example, they wanted to hear from Lindsey Graham, that they wanted to hear from Mark Meadows, that they wanted to hear from Rudy Giuliani and others. There are plenty of people in Georgia that they subpoenaed or could have asked very nicely to come in that we don't know about. There's also people in Georgia that they maybe didn't ask to hear from that still could be in some sort of legal jeopardy when all is said and done. But Donald Trump is the most prominent person who wasn't asked to appear before the special grand jury, didn't have a subpoena issued that he fought or anything like that. So that could be where some of the people are reading the tea leaves there. But ultimately, there are so many figures in the months-long effort to try and overturn Georgia's election, people that um, you know, appear tangentially in articles or maybe not even in anything at all, that still this could apply to. So it's not necessarily, you know, a subtle hint from Judge McBurney that Donald Trump's indictment is coming imminently, but I do think it does illustrate the caution that the judge is uh, exercising here to preserve any rights down the road so that if Fonnie Willis does say, tried to indict Donald Trump, that there is not uh, any due process concerns, or also if there are other people that, uh, you know, that maybe are facing charges that Fonnie Willis wants to go after for perjury or other things, you know, for other things like that, then there's somebody else that wasn't brought in in the first place, but then later gets swept in that they don't uh, have their rights infringed upon. So I, I don't think the wish casting as Anthony said, is necessarily a healthy thing to do. But I do think it is more of a sign of the judge covering all of the bases and making sure that no matter what happens, there is not the objection on procedural grounds or objection that, you know, you unfairly tarnished my name because of this, because it was released. So uh, first of all, Anthony, I did not know the expression wish casting until you mentioned it at the top of the show. It's an interesting word. And you did cautious, caution us about that. But you also said this to the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. You said that McBurney's language is, quote, a wink and a nod. And you said it's a gesture to the idea that the main person here who very well might be accused of something was the least represented in both terms of testimony and other forms of being able to be heard. And so it suggests to me there's a high probability, given the verbiage, that Donald Trump is among those among those who are expressly referenced for potentially committing crimes. Uh, explain that a little more to us. And then, Fred, you weigh in. Yeah. So I, I think, first of all, you know, Judge McBurney throughout this entire process has been diligent. He's been thorough. 
and he's been incredibly protective of the work of the special purpose grand jury. And I think that his order reflects that, right? He's he's very careful. Now, I do think his order is, is very careful to strike a balance to uh, not give too many hints, right, but to cover all the bases of what the report may or may not say. But I think it's undoubtedly true that Donald Trump is the central figure of this investigation. He was not brought into the special purpose grand jury. And he's certainly going to be subject to, um, you know, these recommendations, whether to pursue charges or not by the special purpose grand jury. I don't think there's any doubt about that. There are certainly other people in that category. Um, I believe Newt Gingrich, for example, was fighting his subpoena and then the special purpose grand jury dissolved. There's uh, an individual in Illinois who was accused of orchestrating some harassment of poll workers in Fulton County who who never came to, to Atlanta to testify. So there are, in fact, other people. They're just less central um, to, to the events that happen than Donald Trump. So I think that's that's an important part to lay out. The, The second part is that I think in the aftermath of the release, I'm more clear about what Judge McBurney might have thought. So if this report was a full report, a, a really robust report with all the inculpatory and exculpatory evidence and, and every nook and cranny that was investigated is put in, in you know black and white ink, um, you know, one might be able to read that report and come away with their own conclusions based on it. However, if it's a very part, you know, very sparse uh pared down report with mostly just recommendations for indictment, that really just puts out a right, a big bombshell of you know likely criminality without any explanation. And that's even more, I think, damaging and potentially undermining of due process rights, right? If the grand jury just says, hey, we think you committed a crime, but they don't really give the full explanation of all the evidence uh, that they that they found with any exculpatory evidence and full well knowing that not all the witnesses were called. So so I think, you know, given the the right, the 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 thinness of the report that we'll eventually get, I think that reinforces the reason and the concerns that Judge McBurney expressed in his order to safeguard the rights of witnesses and potential defendants. Um okay, Fred, jump in. Yeah. So during the uh, oral argument, there were two main reasons that were given uh, from the DA's office about why the report shouldn't be released in full. Uh, One of those was that it would be, quote, dangerous to do so in the context of an ongoing investigation. Uh, And the other was that it might undermine potential defendants' rights. Um, And it was clear in the oral argument that Judge McBurney was much more sympathetic to the argument about defendants' rights Given that we all, given that there are already reports about January sixth um, that we now know are far more detailed uh, than uh, than this one, um, and so this is consistent with uh, with that thinking. Um, you know, that said, I would also caution against assuming that this is Donald Trump that we're talking about. It may be, it may not be, it may be one of the people that uh, that Professor Christ mentioned. It may be, uh, you know, someone who they couldn't investigate, namely the lieutenant governor, right? So if this report focuses on the fake electors and one of the fake electors, they couldn't really even directly investigate and this, and this implicates them in some way, that would be a potential point of concern as well, right? Um, especially the, uh, given the position of trustee hole. So we don't know who this person is um, and, uh, and I, would, yeah, I would caution against um, strong speculation in that sense, because I think there's, there's a range of, po- of possibilities. 
Just to explain, uh, when you talk about the lieutenant governor, we're talking about the current lieutenant governor, Burt Jones, who was a fake elector, who was initially a target of this, informed he was a target of the investigation, and then McBurney pulled him uh, out of it because of a apparent conflict of interest. Fonnie Willis had held a fundraiser uh, for his Democratic opponent uh, at one point during the primary campaign. So Burt Jones, for the time being, is uh, was out of the mix for Fonnie Willis to investigate. But Stephen, you know, um, first of all, we should say there are a lot of legal, so-called legal experts, and these two are really are, uh, who are all speculating about Trump uh, in the New York Times, in the Washington Post, Politico, everywhere. So, uh, so we understand that's where this expression "wish casting" makes a lot of sense, of sense to me. We don't know, but here's another aspect of this: there are those out there who are being critical of McBurney in terms of the releasing the section of the report that talks about the grand jury believing at least one, if not more, witnesses lied. Um, And the reason there's some criticism of that is you had 75 witnesses, including major figures like Rudolph Giuliani, Lindsey Graham, and others, and there are those who are saying, well, this sort of tars all of them with the same brush as being potential liars. Um, So it's an interesting uh, way to look at, at that effort to be cautious about not saying too much. Yeah, I I think the release yesterday is deeply unsatisfying for probably everybody except for Donald Trump's Truth Social Post, because it doesn't (laughs) shine any more light on it doesn't shine really any more light on what the special grand jury thinks happened and what crimes they think were committed. I mean, and it doesn't even say we definitely think you need to indict people for perjury. It's kind of like we think people might have not told us the truth. And where there's evidence of that, you should prosecute them. That's like, yeah, hey, where there's evidence of a crime, you should prosecute someone for us. That's, you know, that's very deep right there. Uh, But it's also unsatisfying if you are like many people that uh, are online and very online that are like waiting for Donald Trump to be indicted and for, you know, him to be served in Mar-a-Lago. And like, that's, That's never going to be what this was going to be, even if the full report was released. There are also a lot of people that will be unsatisfied because it doesn't exonerate anyone or really clear anything up either. Like there's not going to be sections of the report necessarily saying these things were icky, but not illegal. And so there's not really a clear cut case of saying, uh, well, okay, well, this investigation happened and there was nothing bad and wrong. So it's just deeply unsatisfying, I think. Uh, okay, I got to get to a final break. I do want to spend a few more minutes on this with our panel and then take on a couple of other issues. But uh, right now, let's get to our final break of the show. Okay, so Fred Smith, uh, a couple weeks ago, well, in fact, when uh, the DA's office argued before McBurney in the first place, they didn't want this report released, uh, Fannie Willis said um, indictments were imminent, or possible indictments. Word on whether there would be indictments was imminent. Uh, That's been a while now, 
And Fonnie Willis explained that there's a difference between a journalist's understanding of imminent and a prosecutor's understanding of imminent. Nevertheless, there's a political aspect to this, right? I mean, at a certain point, I, I can't help but wonder if after eight months of this investigation and all of the um, uh, interest in it around the country, what kind of pressure Fonnie Willis is in to, as she runs for re-election next year, to have something substantive that comes out of this. If she simply says, well, we investigated and nothing's, there's no indictments. In a, from a political point of view, I wonder what that means in terms of her future. I don't know. I mean, I think uh, she's going to take the evidence where, you know, we, she will follow the evidence, right? Um, and... Uh, if at the end of the day she concludes that there's not enough to indict, um, then I think people will uh, will understand that. Um, you know, I, I don't I don't feel the sense that people are kind of clamoring for um, for an indictment if, in fact, that's not what the evidence supports. Um, but that said, of course, there's a political dimension to this because we're entering into this presidential campaign season, right? So there's now. Uh, you know, two major uh, candidates announced in the Republican primary, one of whom is President Trump. Uh, and the an indictment is just the beginning, right? So then there has to be a trial and that takes time and so forth. And, uh, and so this is going to push us further and further into election season. And I know that it's it feels, I feel like we're always in election season. So when are we not in election season? Um, but, you know, we're, but coming, as we approach in January uh, of next year, when the, when the primaries are in full swing and so forth, that's going to be top of mind for people. That's going to be one of the major um, conversations is the fact that there's a presidential election. And so that, that does affect the, the atmospherics of this for sure. Stephen, I want to be careful. I did not mean to suggest that Fonnie Willis would bring indictments simply because she feels she has to show that product of her work. What I am suggesting is if the conclusion she reaches is that there are no reasons to bring any indictments, it's going to be really interesting to see how she frames that as she comes into a time when she's going to be running for re-election. She's going to have to deal with the expectations that an awful lot... We've talked about this whole notion of wish casting around Donald Trump, for example. I'm just talking about not that she'd do anything unethical, but it's going to be interesting to watch how she'd explain it if nothing comes to this. Well, I, I think I think it'll be difficult for her to explain and frame no matter what the decision is and might be why we haven't seen any real movement yet, despite it being weeks and weeks after the report, which was very brief, was finished, because inherently the this and this was discussed when there was the argument that she should not uh go after burt jones because he's a lieutenant governor and because of the conflict of interest like she is trying to not take this investigation and the, the issue of indictments and use a political lens or make them politically motivated even though this is inherently a political investigation because it is one political party that took efforts that might have broken laws to overturn an election result at the expense of another political party. And so those are all considerations that have to be made with bringing or not bringing indictments against people. And also, I think it's just important to remember, too, that like 
usually, especially with something so sprawling as this, not all of the cards are going to be on the table right at the beginning. So if there are indictments, it's not necessarily that Fonnie Willis is going to come out and say, here is every indictment for every crime of every person I think occurred and everything to do with this. It's something that she might want to build up over time or focus on certain things, because if she puts it all out on the table and then the very first indictment that she brings is maybe against a fake elector and it uh, doesn't go well, then maybe it tarnishes all of the other attempts. And so I just think, you know, this is unprecedented territory. And I think uh, the fact that there is an election next year for both president and for Fulton district attorney just adds another layer of complexity to this that isn't exactly clear what the quote unquote right or best answer would be. Uh, Anthony, you want to jump in on uh, just a concluding comment about about the political side of this for her? Yeah, I, I think there's a there's a really difficult dynamic that I see. At least I'm one of those very online people. I'll admit it. Um, but there's a dynamic where I see liberals who are just eager for Donald Trump to get his just desserts and, and they want retribution and they want it now. And I see conservatives who, you know, yesterday were commenting, well, this report's a big nothing burger. And they also, right, they just refuse to, to evaluate the evidence before their eyes and they make excuses for Donald Trump's ignorance or, or you know, lack of, of knowledge about what the truth actually is. And I don't think any of that's helpful, but it's also not helpful to treat this as any ordinary case, as I think many people want to do. Um, Fonnie Willis is dealing with a case that is salient. It has national and international importance. It has significance in a way that you know may, many cases on you know run-of-the-mill cases don't have historical significance about the constitutional order and and our you know our state of politics. Um, and all that is going to weigh on her. The worst thing Fonnie Willis can do, I think, other than um, you know maybe not bring charges in terms of her electorate is to try to bring charges and fail because that is just going to be uh, a lot of wasted effort and energy. It's not going to speak well to her office. And I think it would only further embolden the kind of behavior and election denialism that she's out there, I think, investigating in order to prevent from, from um, you know, continuing on. Okay. Um, we will obviously continue to follow this story. I really appreciate the depth of the conversation from all of you uh, on this. Um, but before we leave, look, we've got two constitutional law experts with us today. Um, so I want to ask each of you, starting with you, Fred, <clears throat> let's talk about uh, Mike Pence. He's been subpoenaed to testify before special counsel Jack Smith's investigation, which is going on in Washington, of Donald Trump misdeeds from the secret, from the uh, classified documents uh, that he withheld uh, from the archives and, and anything else that Smith might want to take up. Uh, Pence has argued that because he was president, he is president of the Senate, uh, he believes that he is covered by the speech and debate clause, which we learned a lot about as we heard people like Lindsey Graham try to get out of testifying before the Fulton County grand jury. So I, I think this is of interest um, because it raises fascinating questions about the separation of powers. Is the vice president a an executive branch officer? Uh, is he, as president of the Senate, actually uh, covered by rules of the Senate? Uh, so it strikes me this is going to be an interesting case to follow. 
Sure. Right. So there's kind of there's two sorts of uh, privilege that are on the table here. So one is executive privilege, which we've seen asserted quite a bit. Uh, and the other is uh, legislative privilege, which comes from a provision in, constitu- in the Constitution called the Speech and Debate Clause. Uh, and there have been instances in the past of vice presidents availing themselves of executive privilege. Uh, so when there were efforts made to get uh, documents from Dick Cheney uh, related to some energy meetings that he had held, uh, he successfully uh, asserted uh, executive privilege. Um, and uh, and that said, there is there are moments in which a vice president, when they're uh, presiding over the Senate when they're casting a vote. There are certainly things that vice presidents do that we would all understand as legislative. Um, and so, you know, the question becomes, which one is this? So what is it more akin to? Um, either way, it kind of maybe takes us, if it's, if it's executive privilege, it takes us to a place where we're going to do some weighing. Um, and you weigh what is the specific interest uh, of the executive against what's the interest in this information uh, and if it's a criminal investigation, the interest in the information weighs very heavily. Um, when it comes to legislative privilege, there's some things that are just categorically off the table, right? It's more absolutist if you end up in that box. Um, it's hard to be in that box, but if you are in that box, it's more absolutist. Um, and so that may be why he uh, would prefer uh, to first to view this through that lens. Um, Anthony, if I'm correct, the reason he uh, uh, wants to uh, use the speech and debate clause is that this has to do with January 6th when he was presiding over the Senate uh, when the insurrectionists stormed uh, the Capitol. Um, but, but again, I think what's interesting about this is from a political point of view. People like Mike Pence, who may be running for president soon, they just don't want to appear to be in any way cooperating with an investigation that's going after Donald Trump. I think that was true of Lindsey Graham and others with the Fulton County Grand Jury. It's a, there's politics behind this as well as constitutional questions, obviously. Yeah, I, I think the constitutional claim is a plausible one, but it's not just plausible for Mike Pence. It's incredibly convenient because it gives him an ability to at least limit or, uh, you know, the, the amount of information he gives to uh, the investigation for, by by Jack Smith. Um, but there's also just at least a performative aspect, right, where he can be in public, be covered in the news media as resisting this investigation and standing firm alongside Donald Trump. So, you know, I, I think there's really interesting constitutional questions. I think that his claim is plausible and it, it's certainly one worth considering. But from a political matter, it's a home run for him because he can he can be uh, a loyalist for Donald Trump and, and be so in the public eye. Stephen, I, we're almost out of time, but I said it when we talked about Nikki Haley announcing her candidacy for president the other day. You, you may want to pull yourself away from Donald Trump, as she's tried to do, as Pence is trying to do. But the reality is he's always there in the shadows. They won't talk about him. He, he's the Voldemort of the Republican Party. He must not be named, Stephen. Well, you know, well, you know, in that book series, the only person who defeated him is the one that said his name the most. But uh, I don't think we're going to necessarily see that in the 2024 campaign, though it is too early to see. All right. We are completely out of time. Uh, Stephen Fowler, thank you so much for uh, taking the time to be with us. And of course, Fred and uh, Fred Smith and Anthony Michael Christ. 
terrific conversation. I hope you all out there have a great weekend. We'll be back with a brand new show on Monday. In the meantime, take care. Stay healthy, everybody.